Unfortunately, this morning I'm here by myself. Dennis and Warren are both, um, and their wives are both at, um, in Indiana to uh, witness the marriage of Ray and Jeannie. So um, that's where they are this morning. Okay, turn with me to uh, John 12 for some thoughts this morning. We've been somewhat working our way through the book of John, um, discussing some of the things that the Lord shared to us through John. I was comforted this morning whenever Ellis asked us what last Sunday's lesson was about, and none of us really seemed to know. So I took comfort in that, Ellis, actually, because... My title of this talk this morning is An Honest Assessment of Unbelief. And I was afraid that some of you would remember the good discussion we had on that um, June 21st whenever the Sunday School title was something to the effect of unbelief. But I have a feeling nobody remembers much of that if they didn't remember last Sunday's lesson. And so we're going to visit this, this subject of unbelief again this morning just simply because that's It is visited here in John 12, and I'd like to talk about that a bit. So we're going to read a few verses here in John 12. We're going to start at verse 37, and we're going to read through verse 41. But though he, Jesus, had done so many miracles before them, the Jews, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. It is some interest to me, I find it somewhat interesting, to, um, and actually almost amazing, to consider the things in this world today that some people choose not to believe. There's a percentage of people, I guess, according to statistics, that still believe, whether they're chronic cynics or contrarians, I'm not sure, but they still believe to this day that the United States never sent anybody to the moon. Now, um, I've met some, a person in my life that was skeptical of that, not sure where he necessarily came out on that, but he didn't believe it, or he had a hard time believing it. There's people that believe that the United States government was behind 9-11. It's an interesting thought. And until a few years ago, there were still people around that believed that Elvis never died. I think that's been put to rest now, but there was few that believed that. And on and on it goes. You have people that still believe there was a big conspiracy behind JFK's assassination. You just keep naming them. And like I say, I don't know whether these people are just have a real chronic case of cynicism or if they just like to fit into society sideways and just choose to be just kind of those contrarians that just won't believe in anything. I'm not sure. Probably maybe a dose of both. 
It doesn't really matter if you believe Ethelus didn't die or not. It doesn't really matter a lot if you believe about the moon land and what you believe about that. But in today's talk, in today's reading, it really matters whether or not you believe in Jesus. That really matters. We don't have a choice in that one. Well, we do have a choice, but let me tell you, it's more than just being a chronic cynic or a contrarian. You're dead wrong. You're dead wrong. Now, the good news is I think I'm speaking to a group of people. I know I'm speaking to a group of people this morning that do not fall into the category of verse 37, and I'm, and I'm happy about that. So let's explore um, this reading a little bit and see what we can find out about these people and why they fell into the camp that they did. And then we're going to see if we can bring some lessons home for us today. So who were these people? Well, the people in verse 37 were part of the multitude that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And if you remember, there's been a lot of activity up to this point. We had uh, Lazarus that was raised from the dead not too uh, far before this particular event. We have some teachings of Christ. We have the... Um, we have the, uh, what we know as is, um, the triumphal entry taking place. We have these uh, Gentiles that Jesus had talked to the last time we looked into John. We talked about that a bit, some of the teachings of Jesus there. But there was, this, there was this big group of people that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in this group of people was quite a diverse mixture. So the group we're talking about today was that group that was just dead set against anything Jesus said, did, taught. They, no matter what he did, they were against it just because he was for it. They were some of the biggest antagonists of Jesus. In fact, it says in verse 36, the verse right prior to our reading, that because of these people, Jesus actually had departed and hid himself from these folks. Now, it seems that... Um, John gives us this uh, little briefing on these people in verse 37 because there was nobody in the Jerusalem proper, probably at that time, that probably had not heard about Jesus in one way, shape, or form. And it's just proof of this. I, I um, looked up some verses in the Gospels that talk about how famous Jesus was. I'm just going to read them to you, just so you can uh, recapture in your mind just exactly what a famous person Jesus was at this time. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, we have some verses that go like this, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought into him all sick people that were taken with divers' diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those who were, which were lunatic, and those that had palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him a great multitude of people, now get this, from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. A lot of people knew about Jesus. After the raising of the maid in Matthew 9 that had passed away, it says about Jesus, and the fame thereof went abroad into all the land. A lot of people heard about that. 
After healing the man with the unclean spirit in Mark 1, it says, And immediately Jesus' fame spread abroad through all the region round about Galilee. This stuff wasn't done in a corner. In fact, Herod heard some of this. And when he considered what was taking place, he goes, Surely this must be John the Baptist. This is a, this is a famous person. And to date, the most famous person Herod knew was John the Baptist. After Jesus' baptism and temptation in Luke 4, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified at all, by all. And last but not least, in Luke 5, after healing a leper, it says, But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to heal and hear him, and be healed of their infirmities. It sure seems to me that the gospel writers wanted to impress on you and I as readers that there was no reason in the world you could not have known about Jesus if you wanted to anyway. And you probably heard about him even if you didn't want to. He was a famous person. Now let's consider another thing. John talks here in verse 37 about these miracles that he had done. He said, even though he did so many miracles, yet they still didn't believe in him. Well, let's look at the miracle part of things. I think that um, uh, part of the reason that Jesus did miracles was to help the poor people that he ran into. But that wasn't the only reason. A good part of the reason that he did it was to prove his divinity. Think about this. When John the Baptist was second-guessing himself on whether Jesus was indeed the person that he was looking for, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, Jesus says, Go back and tell John that what things ye have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and, the, and to the poor, the gospel is preached. He points to his miracles, and he says, that's proof. You get, out, you get out back and tell John that this is living proof that I'm Jesus. Immediately after his first miracle in John 2, the um, changing of the water to, the, to wine, John gives this commentary. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples' believed on him. Alright? One miracle. Manifested his glory, his disciples believed. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles except God be with him. Nicodemus was convinced that those miracles were proof. After feeding the 5,000, it says that those men when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, it says, then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen all that Jesus did believed on him. Can I stop yet? There's more, but I'll stop. Now, if you compare this, flip back in your Bibles to John 10, there's an interesting a few verses here that I want to just counter what I just read with. And notice the irony that after all these 
miracles and all the fame of Jesus, let's, let's read John 10, 24 to 30. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believed not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Get the irony. After all this fame, after all these miracles, and we have a group of people that comes and says, could, could you tell us plainly? Are you the Christ? We need something a little plainer. Folks, how plain does this get? What more do you want? And yet we have these learned men saying, we're not getting this. We're not getting this. In Mark 6.6, 6, Jesus, it seems, was even shocked. After teaching the synagogue, and it talks about there how that these people said, this is Jesus? Isn't he? Isn't he just Joseph's son? You know, and he, we know his brothers and his sisters. And it says Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He absolutely was stunned at their unbelief. It is true that Jesus desires that people would actually follow him without a sign. A sign is not a prerequisite to belief in Jesus. But it seems that what John is pointing out here is that even with signs, these folks would not get it. They still would not believe. And I'd like to just point out three, three places where Jesus makes the point that while he gave signs, while he did miracles, the real blessing goes to the person who doesn't need those things. In John 4, after the uh, Samaritans were called by the woman at the well that Jesus met with, and she runs into town, she says, come back and, and, and I want you to see this prophet that talked with me. It says that um, the people came to Jesus, and it says many of them believed, now listen why they believed, because of his word, because of his word. They had seen no miracle. They believed because of his word. And immediately following that account, if you remember, the nobleman came to uh, Jesus with a son that was sick, needed healed. And Jesus says to him, and it seems like Jesus is being a little hard on him, but he says, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I often thought Jesus seemed a little, little harsh there. But it appears that Jesus knew this man's heart and knew that there was a, a hardness in this person's heart. And he knew that he was from Galilee and he knew the Galileans had a tendency not to give him honor. And it seems that he sensed a lack of faith in this person's uh, appeal to him as contrasted to the Samaritans who chose to believe simply because of Jesus' words. We all know the story. Through the ages, this story has been told of uh, good old Thomas, who was reprimanded by Jesus for needing a sign to believe. 
Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are they which see, which have not seen, but yet have believed. And lastly, in uh, Mark 16, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and desired him a sign from heaven, Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. After that, he left them and departed. It seems, again, this was such a blatant slap in the face to Jesus. Show us a sign. You know, we're, we're seeing all this stuff, but we need, we need further proof, Jesus. We need, a, we need more of a sign. Jesus said no. He says, wicked and adulterous people seek after signs. He said, you don't need more signs. Well, going back to our text in John 12 here, looking at uh, verse 38 through 41. The issue was not about not enough miracles. The issue was not about not having the right signs. The issue was a lack of wanting to know the truth, I dare say. Let's just look at some of the things here, just real briefly, that um, follow this commentary on these people. It seems that uh, they were not, in verse 38 I would deduct, that they were not looking for a revelation from the Lord. They weren't, they weren't looking for it. Think about Simeon in that temple. Whenever Jesus was brought into the te- temple, it said that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when he saw Jesus, he said, that's the one. That's the one I was waiting on. How did he know that? He was looking. He wanted to know the truth, and he was after it. He was looking for Jesus, and he found him. There was no signs there. He recognized it when he saw it. In verse 40, it talks about their eyes being blinded. I think their self-righteousness blinded their eyes. If we would go back and revisit John 9, we, we looked at that some weeks ago. In verse 41, Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. It seems like these folks had no concept of, of their blindness. They were so full of themselves and so full of their self-righteousness that they were literally blinded by it. And, of course, this led to a hard heart, which verse 40 talks about. And once a person has a hard heart, they fail to comprehend and appreciate truth. And Jesus was full of truth. And so he would present truth. And them hard hearts just could not take it in. They would just ricochet right off. Could not, could not appreciate it. Verse 40 also, they did not recognize their need for healing. They blamed Jesus for eating with the publicans and sinners. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I've come for the people that need healing. And he insinuated they needed healing too. But they did not recognize that need. And it seems also in verse 41 that God's glory had totally escaped them when it should have been obvious. When Isaiah saw God's glory, and that's who's being quoted here in these verses, he fell and he said, woe is me, I am undone. And he he said, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want of me. That glory of God had an effect on him that was, I think, uncomprehensible. These folks here did not see God's glory. Whenever um, 
Jesus performed that miracle in Cana, it said that's when he showed God's glory. These folks missed it. The problem of unbelief is as old as the world, unfortunately. And there's plenty of examples of people, both historically and contemporarily, that practiced the sin of unbelief. And I'm just going to briefly name a few in the Bible that we have. Virtually, that was the first sin that was committed, the sin of unbelief, or it played a part in it. When Eve and Adam considered that fruit, and they said, should we do that? And they made that decision, that conscious decision to eat that fruit. What they were really saying is, I don't believe what God told me. I do not believe that in the day I eat that fruit, I will die. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Surely God doesn't care. One time. Surely. Surely that couldn't be too bad of a thing. They were practicing unbelief. And it's interesting to me that in our second example of Moses, whenever... Moses was leading those children of Israel out of, the, uh, out of Egypt to the promised land. There was two times in particular that it seems like he, he struggled. And one time I would say he fell to the sin of unbelief. Remember with me in the wilderness of, I believe it was, um, I'm not sure which wilderness it was, but anyway, that's beside the point. They were out there wandering around. The people were complaining about the manna, and they wanted flesh. So God said, I'm going to give these people flesh. Listen to what Moses said. This is Moses talking to God. He said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat for a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to, to suffice them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my hand, whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Did it come to pass? Indeed it did. But you can see that Moses was struggling. He's like, really? Lord, really? After he had seen all those, all those miracles in Egypt, all those plagues, all those wonderful things. And he's saying, God, I don't know. Can you really give flesh here? Is that going to be possible? He's struggling with unbelief. And then we have the sad account in the wilderness of Zin, where, the, Mo, where uh, the Israelites grew thirsty. And so they came to Moses, and they made their complaints, and they griped, and I don't know, I have a feeling it sounded pretty bad. So Moses, what does he do? He goes to God, and he says, um, Lord, i got this problem. These people need water, and they're acting up on me. So... God gave the command. He said, um, "Speak. take your rod, go to this rock and speak to it, and you'll get water. And you know the story. After Moses had struck the rock twice rather than speak, and the people were satisfied, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Moses, Aaron, because you practiced unbelief. Does anybody feel sorry for Moses? I have to admit, my heart goes out to Moses every time I read this. I can't imagine. I have eight children. I understand the, the, they can bring the worst out of me sometimes. I kid you not. I know the rest of you don't know what that is, but they can me, all right? And I can just imagine if all eight of my children just howling at me, give me water. 
I think I might have took that old rod and smote that rock twice too. I really believe I probably would. I, I just, Moses, the meekest man on earth, I'm, I don't even make that profession. And that's what he did. But God says, you, you were an unbeliever there. You practiced unbelief. What was Moses' unbelief here? Four things. God said, speak. He smoked. Disobedience. The fact that he smoked two times, I believe, brings out a carnal and careless attitude. He didn't do it just once. It's like, I, just, I have a feeling there was some temper behind that rod that hit that, hit that rock a couple of times. Must we fetch water for you rebels? Hit that thing? I can just imagine it in my mind. He was supposed to be God's representative. He was careless and carnal. He says, must we fetch water? Must we? Must, must Aaron and I do this? Rather than pointing to God and saying, God will give you water from this rock, he brings attention to himself. He refers to the Israelites as rebels. Were they rebels? They sure were acting like it, weren't they? But you know, they were really God's inheritance. Think of the times that Moses pled before God for these people. But that day, Moses said, you bunch of rebels, must I get water for you? I can just imagine that, that scene. God said, those four things cast you into the camp of unbelief. Well, there's many other examples we could look at. We could look at Zacharias in the New Testament. In Luke 1.20 it says, And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things are performed, because you believe not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Zacharias said, said to the messenger, give me a sign. Give me a sign that we're going to have this son. And the messenger says, you were an unbeliever. It's instructive to note that he asked for a sign. Okay? The messenger says, it's not so much you need a sign. You, are not, you do not believe. It's also instructive to remember that Jesus said, wicked and adulterous people seek after signs. And the disciples when they tried to cast out the demon in Matthew 17 out of that man that was possessed of the demon, they tried and they couldn't do it. Jesus did it. And they came to Jesus and said, what was wrong? Where did we mess up? What did we do wrong? And he said, it was because of your unbelief that you cannot cast out that, that devil. I don't know what the... It, it would often be interesting to me to know what the disciples' response was, what they thought when they heard that from Jesus. But indeed, if the disciples struggle with unbelief, do you think it's any possibility that you and I could struggle with that this morning? Any possibility at all? Turn with me to Hebrews 3 for the remainder of this time. And here's where we're going to replow some territory that we uh, visited a few weeks ago. But if there's any chapter in the Bible that deals specifically with this problem of unbelief, it certainly is Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read this chapter. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For that man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he hath built it in house, hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, and he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those which 
things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swear my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you are be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all, they came out of Egypt by Moses. But with him was but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom Swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So I'd like to just go down through this chapter and pick out a few things that we can learn about this sin of unbelief and how it can affect us. Remember, according to verse 1 and verse 12, that this sin of unbelief can affect you and me as holy brothers. In today's world, we talk about people falling into the camp of believers and unbelievers. Let's separate that even further. I'm talking about people's, people that find themselves in the camp of believers, yet practice unbelief. Okay, That's where these people were. There was no reason in the world that these, these folks in the Old Testament, these children of Israel, should have been unbelievers. But they practiced unbelief. Being a Christian does not immunize you from the sin of unbelief. In verse 12, this sin of unbelief is a crafty thing, and it compels us to take heed. Take heed. Beware of your surroundings. Beware of what you're running into. Nobody gets up one day and decides, you know what, today I'm just going to practice unbelief. That's the way that's going to be today. It's a, it's a much more subtle thing than that. By nature, the thing is hard, if not impossible, to spot and is as dangerous as a mean dog. Verse 7, the sin of unbelief can only be thwarted by paying daily careful attention to the Holy Ghost and our consciences and giving it immediate attention. One of the subtle things of the sin of unbelief is that the devil uses that tool to try to persuade you and I that life or our spiritual life is not nearly as important to get excited about as, as many other things are. Presuming you have plenty of time, don't get too excited. The Bible says, today, today. I really believe in the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins I do not believe those five foolish had any intention of running out of oil. I don't believe they did. I believe they figured there was plenty of time. But they were lulled to sleep by that bad logic. And when the time came, they had no oil. 
when Felix and Paul were having their conversation, and it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about judgment and temperance and these different things. It says that Felix said to Paul, go your way. Some more convenient season. Come back. I'll call for you when I'm ready for you, Paul. I think that was a bad mistake on Felix's part. He was suffering from unbelief. He believed he had plenty of time. I like this little quote I came by. It says, On the street of by and by, one always arrives at the house of never. And friends, that's often the way it is. Not always, but many times. Paul exhorts the people at Corinth to consider that now is the day of salvation. All right, moving on. In verse 8 here in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the sin of unbelief will harden a heart to the point that nothing will convince it of truth. You know, it was always amazing to me in the, uh, or the, uh, not parable, but the example that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus when the rich man realized his fate, and he's there, and he's thirsty, and he's really not feeling very well at all, he said to Abraham, he says, I know it's too late for me, but he said, could you just send Lazarus back to my brothers? He said, surely, surely, if Lazarus would be raised from the dead and go back to my brothers, they would listen to Lazarus. And Abraham said, not so much. He said, wait a minute. He said, they have Moses and they have the prophets. He said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if one is raised from the dead. And I often contemplated that, and I thought, you know, my, my logic would almost fall with that of the rich man. You know, when you see such a wonderful thing, wouldn't you think that maybe they'd listen? Well, these hard-hearted folks in John didn't listen. After they saw all the signs and miracles, their hard hearts wouldn't get it. It seems like unbelief will harden hearts to the point that truth will just ricochet right off. No signs or wonders does it. In verse 12, I see that unbelief is a progressive thing. It says that take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, departing from the living God. It's not depart or departed, it's departing. It is a motion. Rather than departing from evil, we're departing from the living God. I believe that the walk away from God into the territory of unbelief is a process, one step at a time. It's what we often call apostasy. Apostasy doesn't usually start or happen with one great big leap. It's a small thing. And, you know, we typically think of people that are apostate as people that have just really taken a hard turn to the left, and they're out there in left field, and they're really carnal and, and practicing, you know, some really bad things. We, we got this mental picture, I should say I do, of this person that's apostate. When really, folks, the truth of it is, you and I sitting in these benches today could be just as apostate. And that is serious things to think about. When we give lip service to things, and yet we refuse to practice it, that is an apostate person. It's no different than uh, a few years ago. I maybe told you this story before, some of you. We had a, a guy come to our place, and he was selling uh, air, air purifiers, I believe. Anyway, he came there, and our, you know, he, 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 he wanted to sell us this thing, and so he gave us all the good reasons we should buy an air purifier. 
His price was a little too steep, and my pocketbook was a little too light, and I didn't sense my need for air purifier, so I left it go. So he went out to his car, packs up his purifier, but before he left, he lit up a cigarette, and he was smoking a cigarette. And I went to him, and I said, sir, I said, I, I just lost all my reserve. I said, sir, I got a question for you. You were trying to sell me an air purifier, and you sit in your car smoking a cigarette. Bring this together for me. Well, he went off on a, on a tale of how he had served in Iraq, and he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And this, this was something that, you know, kind of abated that for him. But I said, do you get the irony here? Air purifier, and you are inhaling this vapor into your lungs. Do you get that? He's like, I get it, but it doesn't matter. I mean, in, in essence, that's what he said. And I'm just like, you know, this really isn't helping your sales a whole lot here. I mean, you know, this is, this is really, it's not impressing me. Well, how many times are we similarly or guilty of somewhat the same thing? God gives us a promise. God gives us something he expects of us. He gives us um, something that we should do, and we say, well, um, I believe that's true, but when it comes right down to it, we just won't practice it. You know, think about, somebody estimated that the Bible is, has about 8,000 promises in it. We know that the Old Testament had about 613 commands, and someone has calculated that in the New Testament, there's roughly a thousand, if you want to call them commands, whatever, good, good things that we should embrace and practice. But what do we do? We're so tempted to say, these, these are good ideas, but for me, maybe not so much. And at that point, we begin to struggle with unbelief. This is a process of departing from the living God. It's unfortunate, but the annals of time are literally littered with casualties of people that have thought they could renege, rethink, rework, doubt, whatever, God's word, and it would all be okay. But at the end of the day, the people that generally go down that road seldom make their way back. The sin of unbelief is thwarted by exposing ourselves to brotherly exhortation. And we visited that subject in Sunday school this morning, so I won't replow that too deeply. But it comes out again here in, uh, in our reading in, in Hebrews, in verse 13. But exhort one another daily. It is an antidote to unbelief. Sometimes I think we get a, a wrong impression of the word exhort, and, and I think we visited this in Sunday school. But the word exhort would carry with it the idea of beseeching or entreating or comforting even. Um, sometimes we think of it as a stern-faced you know, preacher with his index finger against your chest bone talking to you. That's exhorting. Not really. Uh, it can be, but exhortation is much broader than that. So how is it? Do you and I value weekly, twice a week, three times a week, coming together and exhorting each other? Do you value that? Are you willing to accept exhortation? Are you easily entreated? I, uh, I like the fact that historically in our heritage, we have been um, very strong on the practice of brotherhood. And I appreciate that a lot. I think we, 
we have derived much benefit from that particular uh, take on things. I have a book at home uh, called Golden Apples and Silver Bowls, and it was, it's, a, it's, it's a book that was compiled in 1702 in Basel, Switzerland, by the Swiss Brethren, when they were sensing they were losing some of the, some of the strongholds they had had in former years. And I'm just going to write what the, uh, what the editor, Leonard Gross, of this book, says in the introduction of this. I'll just quote this. It says, The Swiss emphasized a fiery, brotherly love for one another, and believe the nature of the church resided in the reality of the faithful who gather together to explicate or analyze and explain and respond to the truth. What were they doing? They were battling unbelief. It's exactly what they were doing. They saw the value of that. Do you and I, as their spiritual ancestors, see the value of that as well? Well, moving on here. Another thing I get out of Hebrews 3 Unbelief is stymied. In verse 14, I I draw this in verse 14. Unbelief is stymied when we hold fast to our place in Christ with the same zeal as when we first began. You know how new things always have... um, We're enamored with new things. When when we try a new practice or we get a new car or whatever it is, the the new holds something exciting. But as the thing ages, it loses its, its luster. It loses its zeal. Is that how it is for you and me? Do we lose, do we tend to lose the zeal of our place in Christ as we age in our walk with Christ? I trust not. Hold fast to your place in Christ. In verse 10 in this chapter, I see that unbelief is foolproof that we do not know God's way and probably don't want to know. Hopefully that does not describe you and me this morning. But it certainly described the people in John. It described a lot of other people we talked about today. It's not so much that they couldn't know, but they didn't want to know. In verses 10, 11, 18, and 19 in Hebrews 3, I see that unbelief is not a trivial thing which God overlooks, but it will ultimately separate us from him. That's no news to you. But you know, we can get used to that idea and we can talk about it and not really practice it in our lives. In Revelation 21, whenever John the Revelator is giving the list of people that are going to find themselves in the lake of fire, one of those are those that don't believe. They are the unbelievers. Those that practice unbelief. Well, if we go back to John 12, there is a remedy to this this problem of unbelief. And Jesus talks about it in verses 44 through 50. I'm not going to take the time to read that. You read that sometime. But in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying in those verses is he's saying, believe on me. Believe on me. Believe on my words. Give careful attention to what I say. If you do that, you'll turn into believers. Unbelief will depart. I would like to, in closing, just uh, lift our example to a person that practiced belief. He was a believer. He did not let unbelief get a hold of him. And that is our friend Abraham. And I'm going to read out of Romans 4 here quickly. This is talking about Abraham. 
He said, who against hope believed in hope. In other words, Abraham had all confidence. He hoped against hope. He had confidence in confidence that he might become the father of many nations. According to that, now listen closely, according to that which was spoken, which was spoken. There was no signs here. Abraham went with God's word. All right? And being not weak in faith, catch that, he was not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, he said he didn't even consider that part of it. That wasn't even a part of the equation in his belief. Because if he would have looked at that, he'd have said there is no way. But what did he do? It says he staggered not. He did not stagger. That word stagger means he did not withdraw himself from God's promises. He did not withdraw himself at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. What gave glory to God? It was his lack of unbelief and his strength in his faith. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. It was stacked up that that was a righteous act of Abraham. So folks, where do you and I find ourselves this morning? I trust we're casting our lot with Abraham. I trust that we want to rid ourselves of unbelief. We can either do that or we can be like our friends here in John 12 who said, I don't care. Throw all the miracles at me you want. I don't believe I hope that's not our lot this morning.